From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew in here. Adi Weiner's here. Eric Bradlow's here. Shane Jensen is here. Good afternoon, fellas. How are y'all? I'm in a great mood. How are you guys doing? Oh, God. <laughs> that, that audience is the difference between a Red Sox fan and a Yankees fan. Even today, <laughs> even today, the differences persist. Guys, we've got two hours to go. We're going to do the first quarter on COVID as we typically do. I'm very curious. I feel like I haven't had all of y'all in here to talk with, but I kind of get recentered on COVID every time we have a chance to talk about it. I'm curious. What has your eye in the world of COVID? How would you characterize where we are in the pandemic? And mostly I'm curious about when are we comfortable that we're toward the end? I'm not yet comfortable, especially I'm here. I'm seeing what's happening in the UK. I'm like, oh God, are we going to be taken back up again here shortly? I'm curious how y'all are thinking about it. Well, just the one thing that caught my eye is something I, I kind of put in our rundown, which is, so things are clearly lower than they were, let's say two months ago, but The thing I keep looking at is I've been tracking the CDC data ever since COVID started. And obviously, they have a time series plot of the number of cases and the number of deaths. And so it's easy to go horizontally across and say, today, October 19th, 2021, is the same as when. It turns out it's the same as the second peak. So not the first peak, the second peak in the summer of 2020, meaning the number, in fact, it's the thing that struck mine, I'd love to hear Adi's thought about this, is the number, well, there's one specific aspect. The number of cases and deaths are almost identical, literally on a seven-day moving average, almost identical. The part that surprises me, if the number of cases are the same, why aren't the number of deaths lower, given the therapeutics we have now 15 months later that we didn't have before? So I'm, I was surprised that the average case rate and death rate ratio, if you'd like, are the same now 15 months later. That was the one thing that caught my eye. I would have expected for the same number of cases, a lower number of deaths. I'm going to jump in and say, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me either. And, uh, and it doesn't, and given all the broken down data that suggests and demonstrates so clearly that the therapeutics work, that the vaccination is fantastic, yet it doesn't prevent that many illnesses, so you should see more illnesses and much lower death rates. I don't understand the aggregate data myself. Well, well, but uh, just what, I feel like if you're kind of comparing to, if the null is what we should be, if we're comparing to what we would be doing without therapeutics and without actual treatments, you'd want to compare to the first wave. And certainly the deaths per unit case compared to the first wave is much lower, right? Yeah, but the testing was done was so, so sporadic back in the beginning. So the first wave we had. So I mean, I mean the testing still sporadic, not in a, the same way, obviously. That's true. But so that, like, that could be the missing piece, the testing piece, because so many I mean, people, if the testing was sporadic and early on, wouldn't that actually just, you know. Yeah, increase... that increases the death rate. The, the, yeah. the early on death rate was very high because the test, the number of tests were so low relative to the number of cases that we knew were actually out there. But by the second I, wave, I'm just doing, I'm, I'm doing the same uh, Eric horizontal line back in time. 
Yep. And, you know, yeah, if you draw a horizontal line in the cases back in time, the first wave was nowhere near that. And of course, we weren't testing as well back then. But you draw a horizontal line in death rate back in time and you hit that first wave. We had just, you know, during that first wave, we definitely had this amount of deaths per day. Yes. What, right. One other possibility um, what, is, do we know anything about who is who's getting these cases? Is there any chance that we're not hitting the same population? It's a great question, the- Kate. So they're now, they actually, just today, I believe, or in the last week or so, the CDC has come up with an app uh, that uh, actually allows you to look at death rate uh, and rates by age and by racial population. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So actually, uh, I have that data. And in fact, um, Alan Salzberg, who's been on our show and he'll be working, teaching for us next semester, graduate of our department, um, has done some really nice analysis of that CDC data. And it shows some very things that we all know that vaccinated people have at every age group have have a tremendously um, much, much lower chance of dying from COVID. Only at age, you know, the highest age group, the advantage is, is, is strong, but at no, nothing nearly what it is for under 65. Um, it's aggregated by the CDC. And so, and so they, they just take 65 and older. And there the vaccine is about 80% effective. But in the lower age groups, it goes from 95 to nearly 100% by the time you get to under 29 years old. It's basically um, uh, nearly 100%. One of the things that Alan also did for us, which is actually quite educating, is he compares um, the vaccinated death rate from COVID at its at the over essentially a month of exposure at the highest kind of level of prevalence to the flu chance of death at its highest level of prevalence. So he does a nice time scaling to make sure that all that's adjusted. And um, only for um, over 65 is the is the COVID worse for for vaccinated people. Under 65, it's anywhere from a little bit worse to just ridiculously worse. Once you're under 40, um, the flu is just a far, far, far deadlier and a much bigger concern. So I guess you've been answer, saying that from the beginning, Adi, except we yeah. didn't have the data conditional on vaccination, yes, conditional. obviously, and, from the beginning. And by the way, this is without booster. So and that and that, that's uh, something that's not factored into the CDC data, which which about 10 percent of Americans who are eligible have been able to get at least at this point. And that probably will have a, a, an impact going forward because the boosters really do seem to have an impact, particularly on getting the disease. But that still leaves the mystery which we actually talked about it last week, which is why the United States seems to have such a higher death rate relative to tests than our European um, countries and what they seem to be doing. They have much lower death rates relative to the number of, of active cases that are reported. And I'm not, I'm not sure if I can, I mean, we can all point to little things, but I, I just can't find something that in collection explains it. So this, I mean, is, we talk, this, is, a, this is glib, but how about obesity? <laughs> I mean, comorbidities probably well, too. I mean, seriously, this- seriously, isn't America yeah. famously obese relative to Europe? And don't we know obesity is highly related to fatality? Shouldn't that be counteracted by the fact isn't Europe older? Aren't the age demographics going against the US, US though? I mean, it's not a big difference, but you know. You know, also, there also has to do with attribution. So take, take for example, Colin Power, Powell. Um, he died uh, of COVID. But did he really die of COVID? I mean, he had a whole bunch of very advanced diseases. Um, and if you think about it, and, and I know this from, from my own you know, relatives and, and aged and not so aged relatives who've died, often when, you're, when you have cancer and your, your body has essentially dismantled itself, 
uh, it's usually an opportunist infection that finally deals the blow. We have a, well, also, we have Adi, I'm sure thing. you've seen the same data that I have, which is yeah. people with cancer. And I think he also had, I think it was Parkinson's, I think. Parkinson's, but, yeah. but, but when you combine those two, my guess is, and he was about to get the booster last week, as he pointed out. The point is, he may have had no immuno response. Yes. So to yeah. say he died of COVID, yeah, he probably died of COVID. But if he had a normal immuno response... He probably wouldn't have died of COVID. That's so, yeah, and in I mean, some like, ways, it, it, yes, it, it, the cause was his cancers. He didn't die of cancer. Yeah, he died. Per of, se. He died with COVID. He didn't die correct of COVID, of COVID. exactly. Correct. And and I, think I mean, we I do think do that's a, the thing is, I, I, I doubt this would make up for any European American difference. But I mean, we've talked on the last few weeks about like how, you know, we're kind of the death count due to COVID that we all sort of see on the New York Times or whatever. It's, it's like, you know, if you go to the hospital and you don't leave the hospital. And one of the reasons you were in the hospital was COVID. That often goes as a COVID death, kind of regardless of, you know, what actually, you know, what actually ended you. Um, So, and I I don't, I I mean, I'm not sure that that's necessarily systematically any different than what they're doing in Europe as far as the counting goes. But like, that's probably in the, like, those are some of these small differences that we just don't know about. So, I, so I, I want to ask you another question, and it, there, there, but it's a two-part related question. So I, I think you also saw that they're about to potentially, and I've been talking about this for months now, is this concept of mix and match. Like, I want COVID to have to go through this obstacle course, like Pfizer, then Moderna, then whatever. They're now about to allow it. But I have a different, but it's related to this question, the same tool that allows you to look. I actually went to the tool and looked. The Moderna rates are better than Pfizer. So why wouldn't anybody at this point, why wouldn't you get Moderna? And just to give everyone, before you answer, Adi, but just to give everyone the norms, out of 100,000 people, Moderna, about 85 out of those 100,000 get COVID. For Pfizer, it's about 130. For Johnson & Johnson, it's like 300. And then for the regular population, it's like 800 or 900 or something like that. So the Moderna, in preventing cases is about 30 to 40% better than Pfizer. So why at this point, no matter what you got at your first shot, wouldn't everybody want to get Moderna? Well, um, <laughs> that's a good question. The, the issue is there's a lot of uh, lack of testing. We're not really sure what causes, causes it. For example, one of the big things that is coming out now is that Moderna had a bigger gap. It was four weeks rather than two to three weeks. Um, and yep. it was three weeks officially. Yeah, three weeks um, versus and, four. And, yep. and, and there's new evidence that suggests that what we talked about, if we, if we drag back our conversations to when the vaccine was coming out, we were all talking about three months is the usual standard. And that seems to be the right thing here, too. The longer, the better. And it could be that the advantage to, for Moderna is purely the gap and not necessarily um, the, the, the it's really the same mRNA. So it's really hard to, to differentiate one from the other. The other is the dosage. The MNR, uh, uh, the Moderna dosage was much higher in terms of uh, it just was it just was more, um, and that could be the decisive decisive factor. Um, it doesn't also doesn't seem to have that much difference in actual outcome in terms of morbidity um, and you know bad cases, uh, bad morbidity and mortality. Those seem to be somewhat um, similar for both vaccines. The other thing is Moderna, I think, has uh, is reported or anecdotally, and I think most of you will agree, tends to have stronger side effect in terms of that that illness, that short-term illness that you get. Most people that I know who've had really bad, you know, two day with fever and fatigue. Is this kind of why, is this why the dosage, I mean, I assume that that's kind of the consequence of having that higher dosage, right? Yep. 
Yeah. So guys, I think, I think we're mostly got Pfizer's, did we not? So now the FDA is, I mean, people could always mix and match if they wanted to, presumably, but now the FDA, I believe, has full on said that's okay. Were you surprised by this, given how kind of um, orthodox they've been and, and traditional and slow and all of the rest of their decision making? Were you surprised that they went up with this? And why would you think they did? I'm surprised because of you just explained it, the orthodox and conservative. In, in, in sort of breaking, I mean, if you look at it, it seemed bizarre that they were so cautioning against you changing the protocols that Pfizer was saying, even though Pfizer and Moderna, they had just chosen one thing almost out of thin air too. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there was no real decision-making. We didn't have data with variants. But there has to things. be, given the potential, I agree with you, Kate, given the potential risk aversion, Given the potential, we believe, orthodoxy or conservativeness of the organization, there must be a study that maybe I haven't read, which there's many, somewhere, somehow, that suggests there must be some positive upside efficacy, whether it's in terms of less side effects or greater effectiveness. There must be, because they wouldn't just say, oh, sure, mix and match. Go, go for it. Give it a shot. There must be some piece of evidence somewhere. Well, and also I'll just point out, not necessarily in terms of the efficacy, extra efficacy of mixing and matching, but I mean, I think we certainly have a preponderance of evidence in terms of just how minimal the side effects are for both of these major vaccines now, right, after they've been given out to like, you know, 200 million Billion people, people. just in the US. <laughs> um, and so that could be part of their, that could be part of, you know, to the extent that there's a systematic maybe greater risk tolerance on the FDA's part, maybe that feeds into it as well. I don't know. Is there a thought that maybe the J&J people should be taking the Pfizer and Moderna and they just sort of had to make it a blanket approval to mix and match? Oh, interesting. Right. That's that's a very practical. You're just saying people don't want to have to look at a three by three matrix and like we can't get people to get enough. We can't get the other 22 percent of the people right. to get shots at all. Now, let me wait. wait. Look at this table. If I got this and then I got this and the time. Yeah. Forget it. Just make some statement. Take whatever you yeah. want. It's better than nothing. I have an anonymous friend that I'll probably have all three within the next month or so. Oh I've had God. all three. <laughs> he. They, they, he, he, he got the Johnson Johnsons in the UK, and then he, uh, um, d- you know, got came came to the US and got got the Pfizer both shots, and uh, probably get the Moderna booster at some point. Well, so, Whoa, what's so the far. collect them yeah. all. What four shots, Shane? Shane, if you were going to advise your anonymous friend on the optimal spacing of those, what would you say? <laughs> I don't. What do I? You know, no more. You know, I mean, I. You know, no, you know, wait the six months or whatever they recommend. I mean, I, I don't have any additional information on that. Uh, some, than- some spacing, though, right? Some spacing. You shouldn't be running. Yeah, around no, and these, these were all spaced out. Kind of, these were all kind of spaced out. Okay. Um, okay. You know, so. So given we're now we've been talking about booster land, um, I put something in the chat. Maybe we could all put our guesses there because remember, we all did make a guess of what fraction of the population we thought would get uh, vaccinated. And by the way, I think the fraction over 65 that's gotten vaccinated, I, I only speak for myself, has exceeded by far my guess of what it would be. Over of 65. The pe- yeah, over 65. In the, 80, in the 80s, right? No, it's it's in the Higher. 90s. It's, it's 90s. in the 90s. It's in the 90s. 96, at least one yeah. dose, according to the New York Nine, Times. It, right it's now. like 95, 96 percent that have gotten at least one dose of people 65 plus. It's remarkable. It's absolutely- okay. So hold on. This is hold on. This is really stunning to me because it says something about when push comes to shove, you can actually make a good scientific decision, well, or at least or, take a take a bet on something that might help. Or maybe, maybe I mean, let me just say what Adi just talked about 
five, 10 minutes ago, he just talked to us about the death curves of the virus, the, the vac of, of COVID versus the flu and the crossing point at age 65. So there is a look, I believe everyone should get the vaccine. I know I think everybody knows that all four of us believe everyone should get the vaccine, but at least one can conceptually construct something coherent towards a rational argument at certain age groups, but not above 65. Like okay, you're, you're based. Okay, that's that's I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I, I think it's even more, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think necessarily it's that, you know, oh, well above 65, suddenly the arguments become more rational to people or something like that. I think it's that no. a big part of what gets people, you know, people that are even close to on the fence in terms of vaccination is their social network, their family, and like kind of, you know, the, the people oh, that they know another- around them are getting vaccinated or not. And I think there's this positive feedback loop Good. among seniors, you know, people, the more vulnerable seniors that, you know, everybody, every, you know, they see all their friends getting vaccinated and they sort of see their friends not getting vaccinated, have problems. And that that's, I think, probably a lot more convincing to people than whatever kind of scientific I, kind I, of rational I, argument. We know, I, I love, I I just, love that. And, and I like Eric's and I think y'all are helping me understand that 90 percent, 90 plus percent better. But Adi is skeptical. So what's going I, on? No, I just I guess I'm kind of coming down in Eric's. I think people are just much more scared of COVID than they are the vaccine. When, well, and I, that's I, because when you're old, you're scared of COVID. Well, much, I, much more I, than it. I, I think that I, that's that was my initial reaction, and I think that is part of it. Yeah, you know, and I mean, but, I'm, I, but, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, paraphrasing. Yeah, Shane isn't dismissing that. Shane, of that yeah. is that they, they have more tangible reasons to be scared of COVID. Like numbers in a paper don't mm-hmm. scare people as much as their friends and dying. their, their dying. age cohort dying. Okay. Yeah, good. So I was just I'll, I'll, ask, I'll, so I'll if, add one, one oh, Eric, before we do that, I just want to I want a quick aside on this because it, this Nick Rolovich thing. The, the head coach in, at Washington State football was fired. I mean, he chose to be fired because there's a mandate in Washington that all state employees get vaccinated. He refused. The head coach of the Washington State football team has lost his job because of this. And my main reaction to that is to be a little sobered by the depth of conviction some people have against this thing. I think that's – I'm kind of I'm kind of done calling them idiots, and now I'm, like, turning to curiosity about what – how can these convictions be so strongly held that they walk away from, you know, a team that they believe in and, and that love them and a job that pays them millions of dollars? And I mean, that is some serious depth of conviction. That, Wait, they, do we want to talk about Kyrie Irving first or before this? Well, uh, he's before Nick a, Rolovich. He's, yeah. You yeah. Know, Rolovich I mean, we're talking about a $200 million contract the guy's walking away from. Yeah, but Irving's shown himself to be a little crazy beforehand, you know, and he's such an exception. It's, it's more relatable to talk about it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. But so I want right. to, I want us all to go on the record to give a guess. Let's say right now, by the way, just so you know, this is amazing numbers too, of people 12 and older, 12 and older who are now, that's the only population eligible to get the vaccine right now. I was shocked at this number. 77%. I could say that very large. Mm-hmm. Seven, I, I wish it were larger. 77.1% of people 12 and older have gotten at least one shot. That's remarkable to me. Let's say that number ends up hitting 80%, 82%, whatever the number is, okay? What fraction of that 82% do you think will get a booster? So this is conditional on already being vaccinated. If they come out and say you should get a booster, let's imagine. I mean, some of them, if they don't recommend it, some people won't get it. But let's say they say everyone that's 12 and older that got the original vaccine at some point in the next year should get a booster. What fraction of this 77% got it because it was mandated by their employer or by some government or something. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. Up. 
it's but the number has, the the numbers crept up, but it hasn't spiked up. It's not like, yeah. you know, I, the way I view it is, you know, we, let's say it was 72%, 73%. And so it's been 4% of the 30%, which is actually quite a large fraction, right? It's, it's, it's you know, of the very highly skeptical people, over 10% of them have listened to the mandates and actually gotten it. And I consider that actually quite an accomplishment. Um, I, I was just going to say, I don't know why the number, I, I have no basis for this, except to say 80%. No, it won't Does be the F- No Does way, the FDA no. Lower? Every year when they uh, um, flu shot comes out, I assume the, they say you should get it. Like, I assume that's the messaging every year. And how many yep, people yeah, get the flu yeah. shot? Oh, How many people get is it two thirds? Is it a half to a two thirds? No, I don't think it's a half. It, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would, I would cap the booster at about a half, just because obviously there is going to be a lot more pressure on that. Unless, unless it starts getting mandated too. I, if it stays just as a recommendation, I would put it less than. A half. Are you integrating Kate, uh, Shane into your probability? The possibility. Let's imagine what Kate talked about couple minutes ago, let's imagine things start to spike back up dramatically. And it turns out it's vaccinated people whose whose two exactly. shots have worn off. Exactly. Then what no, do you no. think? So, I'm, I mean, I'm integrating I, that I, as a possibility I, I into you, my probability. I, I my point estimate is below 50 percent. Oh, um, yeah. But there's a there's an interval. You know, it could, if 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 if, you know, some breakthrough, vari- you know, or some, you know, some variant comes up and is, you know, if the rates start going up or things start getting mandated booster wise and stuff like that, that's what, what, what did remind me what we got to real quickly on percentage of the eligible population that kind of freely and quickly ran out and got the vaccine when it became available. What number would you put that at? Two thirds. Wasn't it about 60? Look, didn't we oh, I- basically get to about two thirds? I would have put a little bit lower. I thought it was like almost instantly. Yeah, I thought it was about 50 half. that we got to. Yeah, half. And then there was some work to kind of go up. There was the, People were just slow, and then there was some work. But they I think they the weren't quick readily and easy, available until April. I mean. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to go around half. Have, have we gotten uh, – the other fa- figure I'd be kind of interested in is how much has gone up since the FDA kind of made it – you know, an official, you know, gave right, kind of the official, official approval, approval to it. Right. Because certainly that was, I mean, I was always skeptical that people who didn't want to get it, I mean, a lot of people who didn't want to get the vaccine were using that as kind of, I, I was always skeptical about that. But it, we now would have the data on how many people actually that turned around. Or at least I wonder we would how, have many people, how many people got it since, since that announcement. I wonder what percentage of people who got the vaccine and had a bad experience in that first day or two would be reluctant to get the booster on that basis yeah. alone. Yeah. So there might be some that go in the other direction, you know, that, that have had it and now they don't want it again. And certainly I have, I have many friends that have, you know, always refused the flu vaccine, have uh, refused not taken the flu vaccine because they're weighing, you know, they're, you know, the fact that they, you know, are going to feel awful for an evening, almost guaranteed with like the chance that they'll feel awful for a few days in the future. Uh, so bad. It's so bad. We have to make work. I, I used to get the, uh, the mini flu. I used to call it the mini flu. I hated it. It's 24 hour mini flu. Yeah. 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 Well, Adi, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with that. Adi. You're, well, I mean, me, me trying to get you to not bike anymore. Guys, uh, there's this study out of Michigan. Somebody read this thing study out of Michigan talking about, you know, supposedly a real good look. We haven't had these real good looks at the impact of masking in schools. Did they get it? Cause they end up saying, well, yeah, the mass students are, there's less infection, but it's maybe not as big as you think. Audie, you're skeptical of the whole thing. 
Uh, you know, I just want to point out it's not a it's not a study; it's a report. Now, I don't want to I don't want to you know split hairs. It's a big deal. It's not a scientific attempt to adjust for compound, confounders and yeah. And I was going to say, well, is this a randomized controlled experiment? No, no, it's not. You know, we, we're in the, we live in an observational statistics where causal inference is done from yeah. observational data. We can try to do things without having a, a good design, and we don't have that. None of those things are attempted here. They, this is just a, a graph. Um, they went out and they they just reported the number of cases in in kids twelve through eighteen, um, and they just divided up into three groups. Um, basically. Com complete masking in the schools, partial masking in the schools, and and no rules. So it could have been arbitrary. And what they and what I thought was interesting about it was um, they reported widely that basically um, by the end of the, the tracking period, which was mid September, the places that had no masking had much higher rates of COVID in the school. What they didn't report when I went, when I opened up, no, all this is just a report, is that the partial and the no masking were about the same, which is weird right if masking you know there should be a dose response here right and there wasn't any. it's not so weird mask, in no that the and, giant, yeah it's not weird to me in that the giant confounding variable is the type of part of the part of the country exactly that would so, actually yeah, yeah you know, so shame, push for so, no for no, right. you know would push against masking versus for masking is a gigantic confounding variable confounder so that's the difference between a report and a study yeah. a study tries to get into confounders and tries to adjust for them so let me say the this is a big community is the most important one and there's no attempt to to sort of adjust this also geographic um uh, correlatedness or it is, these are not independent uh, locations. So as I said, it's just a report um, and and it's really hard to make that much out of. But I think if you're trying to, to, to talk about it, you should at the same time talk about the fact, well, actually the, the rates actually tracked almost identically until sometime right around September 1st. And then the communities that weren't masking had a, a big increase and the communities that were partial or, no, or completely masking just had a very slight increases. That's the piece of data. I'd love for people, someone to go in and dig a little deeper, um, but this, this, uh, this is not it. I was just going to point out that this kind of report, which by the way, I first saw it on CNN reported today, and then that's when I went and looked at the study. I think this can do a huge amount of, I'll call it damage to the community because the, 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 the tagline that came out of this is, I mean, still, by the way, even without confounders being, the summary was mass are about half you know, they cut about 50%. But the early data has suggested it's a lot more effective than that. And so my only comment is, is that when you when you list these reports, I'll, I'll agree with Adi, not a study, when you list these reports, and you don't take care of confounders, time of the year, or, you know, winter schools actually back in session, gestation period, all these things, you know, these, these taglines that you get from there can make it seem, yeah, masks are partially effective, they're fine. Then that's unfortunately not the correct inference. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I don't disagree with any of that, but I am reminded of something that our buddy Leonard has said in the New York Times in recent months, recent weeks in particular, that again and again, things that we thought would make differences with this thing make less of a difference than, than, than we thought. So like, like masking, we're just not, and the, the, the theme that he drew, and this is a journalist, of course, so he's, you know, paid to draw themes was it's not a morality play, that we tend to think that we have more agency over this thing and that it responds to our actions more than it actually there does. There could and also very well example. be a, a mask by age interaction. And there could very well be that we don't understand Community. very well. Community is what, yeah. what James that, talked about. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying that masks yeah. cut the virus by 95% or not only transmission, but getting the disease 95% for 60 plus year old people. But when you're under the age of 18, 
maybe that is there is a difference in efficacy. That, that's something we need to look at. All right, guys. So that has been the first quarter. That's been the COVID quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You can join us. You can jump in on our Twitter feed at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests and tweet periodically about sports analytics. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag of sorts. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read them all. We get as many as possible on the air, but we'd love to hear from you. Questions, complaints, ideas, whatever you got. Hit us up on Twitter or on our mailbag. Guys, open topics segment here, Q2 and Q3. Got the whole crew in here, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and this Cade Massey. We've got some football to talk about. We're going to hold off a little bit on football and cover a few other sports. We're hot and heavy on baseball with the, the, the league championships going on. And we got basketball kicking off tonight. So let me hear, have you Yankees recovered? Are you even watching baseball? Are you, are you moping around, refusing to watch it? How does it work? How does it work when you're a week after your season's over? Well, you, you do watch some baseball because you just like it but you don't watch much of it because you're really not enthusiastic <laughs> about all the teams. It's, you really have to have some enthusiastic enthusiasm about it. I mean, because you really hate the Red Sox because, you know, they're the Red Sox. And the Astros you don't like because of everything the Astros have been up to. So that kind of leaves Atlanta, which you're kind of wondering, are they a good team? How are they there? You, um, yeah. And then the Dodgers, I actually like the Dodgers. I think they're, they're a well-constructed team. Um, and I have been watching some baseball, but greatly, you know, disappointed. You know, what's interesting that Adi just said is something I've been thinking about this week. If I asked you guys to go to, let's say you were in visiting Texas or something, maybe like Shane was, and I said, Shane, you have an opportunity to go to, I don't know, I'm making this up, Cowboys against the Colts game, be a fun, you'd go to the game. Oh, yeah. And if I, yeah, for sure. And it, maybe even the NBA, if I asked you, you know, you can go see the Warriors play the Hawks or something. Yeah, that'd be kind of an interesting game. But if I dropped you in a city and said, no, I would go do it because of the atmosphere, but if I just dropped you to see a random baseball game of teams you don't care about, that's one of the differences I was thinking about for baseball. Like I can watch some of the Red Sox and Astros, but I can't watch that much of it because I just don't, I hate both teams. And I mean, if they can both lose, that's good. (laughs) And by the way, I was happy. I did see something historic. That's why you watch baseball. I had never seen grand slams hit in two consecutive innings like that. I had never seen something like that. And now apparently they hit one the next game too. I wasn't watching it at the time, but I can't baseball. It seems like you have to have something in it to one of the teams. I want to get, okay. I want to get one exception to that. Now TV, I, I think you're right. But on TV. Person, one of the things that's ex- exceptional mm. in the other direction about baseball is I'll go to the park for a few innings and eat a dog and drink a beer and sit in the stands and watch anybody play, even a minor league game. So that's one of the upsides of baseball is that you do get kind of that just open air vibe that means the game is kind of meaningless. But I hear I you will on watch TV. a little league game. At, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I mean, Kate hit it right on the head. Is that like, you know, I, I, I would go just to check out what the ballpark's like. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. one of the cool things about baseball is every ballpark is different. Every fielding surface is different. I mean, the ball, especially in these, this postseason, it seems like the actual ballparks have been playing a very big role. You know, certainly Fenway yeah, right. Park has been playing a very big role in kind of what has happened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. But, I mean, I think if I – if I had to witness the Yankees doing what the Red Sox are currently doing, I would have a hard time stomaching that game after game, seeing them already tie the major league baseball postseason record for home runs. (laughs) Just as an example, by the way, Shane is wearing both baseball cap and Jersey. He's representing Boston very well here. Just from a statistical perspective, let me say what surprised me. So the first thing I looked at was I looked at the, uh, the national league, and I looked at the Braves being up 2-0 on the Dodgers. First thing is that surprised me greatly because obviously the mm-hmm. Dodgers won 106 games this year. I don't know how many of the Braves. Was it about 90? Did the Braves win around 90 games? Somewhere in that range. Not much more. Early, low 90s, I think. 88, low 90s. 88. 88. 88. Okay. Wow. All right. Okay. So first, um, that surprises you a little bit. Um, of course, what's interesting, of course, is because one's the wild card. The 88-win team did host the 106-win team. So let's just yeah, – the games right. were at the Braves. But the other thing that surprised me is if without looking, maybe you guys already looked. If I called the betting odds for the Braves, I'll even give you the number. The Braves are plus 200 right now, plus 200 to win the World Series, plus 200. What are the Dodgers? Remember, the Dodgers are down two to nothing in the best of seven series. Oh, it's a great so question. The Braves, so I'm giving you an anchor. I'm giving you the yeah. anchor that the Braves are plus 200. And the Braves are up two to zero. And let's assume, by the way, if they got to the World Series, even just to make the math simple for our audience, too, for us, too, that they have they'd have the same odds if they no, got to the World Series. That's what, Series. Makes, that's what makes it interesting, because they we, right. we know they wouldn't. So, but right. first, but translate plus 200 into probability for us to make the Well, plus 200 would be you take uh, it's one it's third, one third. It's exactly a third. Okay, so 33% chance of winning. the whole, Which just to be clear, by the, the way, it's, it's, it's a good way to do the math. No, no, it's a good way to do the math, which means. If they have a half chance to win the next round, they have a they must have a two thirds chance according to this betting odds to win this round. Yeah. So two thirds yeah. times a half is a third. Yeah. So my question is, if the Braves are plus two hundred, what do you think the Dodgers are right now? Well, so I'm going to give them. That means that it, by that, that means that the Dodgers would be one third to win the series, which is yep. interesting given they're down two. It's probably a little bit more than that because the Atlanta Braves are probably not fifty fifty to win the uh, World Series if they get there, but let's just give them that. So then the question is, what are the Dodgers, if they get there, they're going to have a, a higher chance than the Braves of winning the thing if they get there. And so well, here's the number that shocked me. I would have guessed them about the same, about the same. Okay. So let me just say, by the way, if the, just to be clear, if the Braves are, are two thirds and the Dodgers are one third and then one third times a half is one six, they should be at plus 500 just to let you know the relative odds there. Turns out they're at plus 300. Yeah. Now, that seems to me yeah. to be a bad bet. That's a bad bet right now that they're at plus 300, given that the Braves are up two to zero. That just seems to me to be, I understand there's the vague, all of that stuff, but I'm just saying plus 300 seems to be, I mean, now I'd I have to go back and say, it, what I are think, the odds Eric, that they have to it, win the World Series? Yeah, no, a no, lot of if, it comes off. A lot of it comes off they're considered much stronger in the World Series if they get there than the Braves are. That's a lot of that coming off of that. But I think well, just to kind of like a little just because uh, I did look at the odds ahead of time that Eric posted. The other kind of surprising part of this, too, is the Dodgers are plus 300 to win the World Series. The Astros are plus 360. So the right. Astros have longer odds, despite being only down by one game. 
as opposed to down by two games in their current playoff series. And that's weird, obviously, because, I mean, I don't think we'd necessarily say the Dodgers would have a gigantic advantage over the Astros if in, in the weird. Apparently, apparently we do. Apparently well, we well, or I guess we do have an implied difference, but I don't think that implied difference should be there. Well, yeah. that um, interesting. It's all super very that Braves. I was I was I'm glad the Braves are fighting like this. I'm sorry it's a seven game series because I have this feeling the Dodgers are going to win this thing in the end. But you know, I, I was in San Francisco for Game Five last week, and just being out there a bunch this fall made me you know favor those guys. And Farhan being the general manager makes me favor them. And and you know I've been pulling against the Dodgers for a while now in a few ways. And so I was sorry to see him do it. And then I say, well, they're up against the Braves. Well, dadgum, that means they're going to walk straight into the world series. And apparently not, which no. is baseball, man. This is the, these, these, but also how much, like how much, how much pressure, I mean, both games are being played today, the day we're filming, how much pressure is on the Astros and the Dodgers today? I mean, Dodgers go down three, nothing. I mean, we know it's happened before, unfortunately. Um, once, um, <laughs> if the Astros go down three to one, I don't like the Astros if they go down to the Red Sox three to one at all. So this is a must win game for both of those teams. Okay, guys. Uh, So uh, good luck to you, Shane. Your team is the only team that we're still floating around that we care so strongly about. Um, What about these other sports? We've got NBA kicking off tonight. I think we have two games tonight and then the fuller, fuller slate tomorrow. We've got the Warriors kicking off tonight. I think the Nets are playing tonight. Um, any news from the betting markets on how the season is supposed to shake out? Yeah, so I, I posted the uh, betting odds for winning the NBA title. And there's one thing that struck me, and maybe I've got – I'm thinking about this. You guys, obviously, we know who the defending champs are, the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Mm-hmm. But let's also remember, they were they won, no doubt about it. But we tend to think of these things in two binary away. They were one toe away – from losing to the Nets. Remember, Kevin Durant hit a shot that would have eliminated the Bucks in game seven of that series, but his size 18 toe was on the line. If, if, and he meant to shoot a three, of course. He wasn't like he meant to step inside the three-point line, right? And they didn't dominate in necessarily in the other rounds. And so I almost think like the Bucks are getting this premium because they won the title more so than they were the dominant team. Because right now, for example, they're at plus 900, meaning well, basically a 10% chance. I don't know if they have a better, a much better chance to win than a bunch of other teams that are listed below them. I don't have any strong belief about that. Like, they have a better chance to win than Phoenix. Phoenix is plus 1,500. Phoenix gave, uh, you know, Phoenix gave everybody all they could handle last year. I mean, Phoenix was a very good team last year. And, you know, so that was the, what struck my is that I think the Bucks are overpriced a little bit on the basis of them winning the title, not noting that they were there were two or three teams that could have come out of the East. And- but I mean, they're true. And I guess but there are at least three teams, you know, one of which is from the also in the East that are above them. In kind of, you know, by a lot. I mean, you you could kind of counter argue that, you know, for for people that are defending champ, you know, for the defending champions teams, for them to kind of be like only the fourth or fifth best team in terms of the odds, maybe they're they are actually kind of being somewhat discounted by the market. 
So hold on, I don't see that. I'm seeing only the Nets with shorter odds than those guys out of the East. The Lakers. Oh, uh, in the East, yeah. So there's three, oh. like the Lakers and oh, Warriors. The Lakers. Have long I think yeah, the yeah. Lakers, by the way, I I wouldn't bet the Lakers are plus. I mean, the Lakers are the second most favored team, maybe. I mean, at some point, we have to start integrating health into this. I mean, yeah. both the Lakers' health are the oldest team maybe in the history of the NBA. I mean, LeBron goes down. <laughs> this. No, no. I mean, seriously. Yeah. LeBron goes down. The season's over. Anthony Davis is not old, but he hasn't had a healthy season. He goes down. The season's over. Russell Westbrook hasn't been healthy, and he's now 33, 34. So is he really going to be able to put up 40 minutes of Russell Westbrook work? I mean, so, I'd say the yeah, same, think, same, same, same is- with the Nets. I think this is super interesting. I wonder to what extent when people run Sims, how, how, to what extent are they incorporating injuries, especially in basketball where an injury can really change a team's trajectory. You really ought to get injury probability into the Sim and then probably ought to be, and then should that injury probability be kind of a random, like independent, like a random coin flip? Yes. If you believe that the injury last season were a random coin flip, can, can I jump you, in here? Eric's arguing that they, because of their age, they're more prone to injury. No, 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 it's random. It's random, but you, the, the probabilities vary with individual, and they are yeah. certainly a function of age. Let me, sure. just, let me just point out, folks, that these, these, this is, these are Vegas odds, right? So these are not the probabilities. They're just uh, implied probabilities from the public. Two things to factor in. I think potentially the public doesn't deal with injuries and those risks properly. And second of all, um, the Vegas loves to take positions and they might think of these lines as delightfully bad in the sense that they're going to make a lot of money off of them. I mean, they have unbalanced books and they, they like that the, there's a lot of bad money in there. Bad money usually gets corrected by, by smart money, but this is giant betting markets. I mean, there's a huge, I mean, betting on who wins the, the NBA title must have, must have enormous amounts of action on it. And I'll bet they're taking positions at, at least early on and they just don't care that they're wrong. We can't let that one go because I'm, I'm, it doesn't quite match my understanding. I understand they're, they're, the book that they, they don't just balance the books. So that's that's right. know, a bit of an urban legend, but they are exposed when they're too far one side. And so there's a risk to being it's not that they don't care because you get enough sharp no. money on the other side and you can really get hurt. But they're willing to edge that way in order to take a position. But I don't know about big. I don't know about big positions. There's too much sharp money on in NBA to take big positions they know are wrong. Well, I'm not sure there's that much sharp money relative to the enormous size of the public on who wins the NBA outright. I mean, that's a lot of, I mean, these are, these are, by the way, they tend to be very bad. If you sum up the probabilities, it's way bigger than one. Um, oh, so in other for words, sure. A lot of big in here. So, so, you know, you really have to be, uh, um, you have to be very bad lines. Um, I bet there, I bet there's quite a bit of sharp money just to diversify your portfolio in here. Well, let me ask you, um, if you were to, yeah. one thing that's interesting, we always do this in every sport every year. If you believe these lines, again, these are the Vegas lines, doesn't make, and these are one books, this is Vegas.com, so it doesn't matter. The Nets and the Lakers have 50% of the probability. How do you feel about that? You total up the Nets and the Lakers. I'll give you everybody else, and you have yeah. the Nets and the Lakers. Who are you taking? Uh, we, we're no, a I mean, we're a field yeah, group. We're, we're always on the field, this group. No, but, but in this are, one, you have to take odds. the field. I mean, the, terrible. the point that I'm saying, saying is that those are terrible odds, yet the public is willing to buy them because they want to bet the Lakers and the, yeah. and the Nets. They just love, they love to. Those are the big favorites. They're big teams. There's the superstars. They want to bet it. And, and, and Vegas says, okay, we're going to give you shit. And, and, and they're taking it. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. instead of withdrawing because the action gets unbalanced with people taking the other side, they're just like, okay, 
But in fact, <laughs> so you don't money. even have to go to those buckets. If I'll give you the Lakers and the Nets, and I'll take the next six teams, the Warriors, the Bucks, the Suns, the Jazz, the Clippers, and the Sixers. As a matter of fact, throw mm-hmm. me in the Nuggets. I'll take those seven. You can have the Lakers and the Nets. I'll take the next seven, and I don't even care what you do with the other 21 teams, 23 teams in the NBA. <laughs> yeah. I'll take – I'll just – I don't even want all 30 – 28 of their 30 other teams. I just want the next seven. There's a much better chance one of those seven teams stays healthy than the top yeah, two. Yeah, healthy. The injury risk alone is a good argument against stacking too many chips on a single team. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Guys, what teams – I don't even know if we have a good answer to this. I think it would be a good one to take up. What teams are we interested in from an analytics perspective? We can talk about, we, we know this best about the NFL because it, there aren't as many of them. We know a little bit about it in baseball. I don't know how well we can differentiate teams by how analytics invested they are. Are there some teams that you are more curious about than others? I, th- I, mean, I think, you know, for example, Daryl being over here in Philadelphia has to make that interesting never mind you know setting aside the soap opera of ben simmons which only became more dramatic today but you got to see you want you're curious where what happens with maury being there but there's have to be some less obvious analytics based lines storylines around the nba are there any others that you know over that you're you thinking know about? I'm, I'm always asked ask this question like where do you see analytics in each of the sports and we see it i think We've seen it so much in baseball historically. We see it like crazy this year in football with the decision-making. But basketball, always, I always feel pressed to answer the question of where can you see analytics in the game? We know we see it in decision-making and personnel and, and contracts and, and cap maneuvering. But where do you see it in the actual court of play? And I don't even know the answer to that. I'll turn it to you guys. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just echo that. I think I just don't know enough about, you know, basketball to kind of really see sort of where the analytics kind of pop up. I mean, the way the analytics should kind of play a role is, I mean, you know, kind of like analytics in baseball, you know, I mean, you know, the money ball kind of, you know, Oakland A's because they had such a disadvantage, you know, payroll wise they turned to analytics as a way of kind of, you know, getting, you know, hidden value in places and I think maybe the analog here is our teams that the teams that aren't these super teams, you know, how can they sort of like, you know, a team that's not a super team, how can you build a team that can compete with one of these super teams, even though you don't have one of these, you know, top five players, you know, on your, on you your mean team two of them <laughs> or two or two or three of them or whatever. Well, ask the Bucks. That's what the Bucks did, right? Yeah. The Bucks had yeah. Giannis, who's clearly well, the Hawks a top five A couple five years player. ago made a real run without anybody that I'd heard of. Well, look, the by time. the way, that's another very interesting team. Let's remember the Bucks. I think, played the Hawks in the Eastern Conference Finals. And the Hawks are plus 3,500. Now, I'm not yeah. saying the Hawks are going to win the title, but I'm just saying they did make the Eastern Conference Finals last year. I think it goes back to, Adi, what you've said all along. Last time I checked, isn't three worth more than two? It is. <laughs> yeah, it's worth 50% more. Chuck up a bunch There's of some analytics right there. Okay, but, Eric, but, Eric, we've been watching that one for a while. So yeah, that that's, one we that's kind all. of understand. That's like that other than defensive shifts in baseball, that's the most obvious change on the playing surface that we've seen in any sport right. is the hollowing out of the mid-range two-point shot. But what comes next? I've heard Maury talk about getting uh not crashing boards, not getting back on defense. Like this is the next kind of 
inefficiency, next big inefficiency that he's willing to talk about is apparently no big secret. You should or should not crash the boards. You should crash and, and go against this conventional wisdom that you got to get back on D. Huh. With the advantage of offensive, collecting offensive, offensive rebounds, rebounds are really good. Much more valuable than, than what you might do by putting another guy um, back on D. So that's one. Now, I think, Adi, the answer is going to be maybe we have some more, but they're just not as obvious. But I think that's all the more reason to ask the question. We should ask the question. We should get a Seth Partnow on here and say, hey, Seth, Tell us what we should be looking at to differentiate teams that are a little bit more analytic savvy from other teams. Like, what do we see? I think one of the things you hear is the, the lineups, guys, teams figure out who plays well together and they see what lineups play well together and they deploy them more. But that's something that we wouldn't, wouldn't be quite as obvious to us. It's a great question, Adi, and, and I, don't, I don't have a very good answer to it. And I'll just say, you know, the one thing worth paying attention to, I guess, and that could be very analytics motivated, even among the super teams, is kind of the load management of those super teams. Yeah, like, we've seen how, that for sure. You know, I, I mean, obviously, that's the continual evolution of how, you know, how much is LeBron going to play this year? How much are some of these, you know, how much are the Nets going to play their stars? And, you know, you know, what, how, you know how that continues to evolve. Yeah, sort. I, I I think that's an important issue, but I'm not sure that's analytically being analytically driven. They're just doing it, right? Well, they're I don't just, know. I think just, we don't know. I don't. I, I, I right. certainly I can't claim it is, but something that at least theoretically could be analytically could driven. be. No, like but it's know, certainly, like, but what, but the prevalence kind of corresponded with the rise in sports science, and even the beginning of our show, the very going back almost eight years now, we talked about that being one of the frontiers we hear lots of people talking about, and I've, I have a hard time believing that load management didn't come up alongside sports science kind of gaining some traction guys what about other sports we'll save a little bit do we need to go into football now we've got q3 to talk about it but eric i know we're off to a uh, we're off to the start in the nhl uh the kraken they picked up their first win last week yeah uh the, it's a fun team to pull for because they've been so kind of analytics forward from the beginning and they employ a pen alum and a favorite of ours namita a frequent host, a frequent guest on our show. Anything else on the NHL is certainly, certainly super, super early. How long until we can say something about teams that are showing up or not showing up? How long until I mean, we I know mean, whether the, the Leafs are going to make another run this year and disappoint us in the playoffs? What do, <laughs> well, that, that, that almost seems guaranteed. The, the disappointment <laughs> part is almost guaranteed. But like uh, the, um, I, I would say, I mean, the kind of unfortunately, like kind of unexciting answers. I, I need at least twenty games. Like I need a quarter of the season before I really start getting super excited about a team. Okay. You, you know, before I start seeing kind of like my my kind of prior t- expectations, I, I actually start moving the needle on that. Okay. Uh, there's plenty of okay. exciting ba- uh, hockey to watch between before we get to twenty games. But I'm not going to read too much into. I mean, my hometown Calgary Flames are bad now, and they probably will be bad also in 20 games. But, you know, other than that, um, I don't think we should read too much into these early season actual kind of outcomes. Can I ask a, a, an ignorant question in the comparison? Um, in, in basketball, it takes two teams before you get 50% of the probability of winning the national, you know, the, the championship. Oh, good, so, right. So how many guys go in hockey before you get the victory oh. currently? Half. Have any idea? <laughs> yeah, no, saying, yeah, no, probably not half, but I bet, you know, Six or seven Vegas, is, I mean, you know, I mean, there's got to be the same kind of Vegas phenomenon of people betting on, oh, you know, those odds are probably not well calibrated anyway, but like, right. I would say at least 10 to 10 to 12 teams before you get half of the odds. Wow. Uh, Holy yeah. cow. 
Yeah. Okay. So that's that speaks to possibly two different two different lot. things. Yeah. One, it's a noisier game, hockey, than yeah. basketball. And the other thing, probably yeah, also just, they're not as they're not as differentiated. The quality of teams aren't quite as differentiated. The other thing I, I was gonna say about teams. hockey is until you tell me, just because I mean this is what Shane, you've been talking about for years on our show, until you tell me that it's gonna affect the probability they're making the playoffs. I'm not putting much stock in updating anything because if you make the ho- hockey playoffs, the six seed, seven, eight, whatever, you, you can win it. Yeah. And so right. um, there's mm-hmm. not, in other words, if you tell me they've played 20 games and they should have, you know, let's call it 1.25 points per game, like targeting a hundred. So that yeah. means 25 points and they have 10 points instead of 25. Then all of a sudden I'm starting to say, okay, yeah. you've got 15 points to make up. Or you got to get to ninety yeah, to make no, the exactly. playoffs. Now I'm starting to say something, but until you get to that point, I'm not that concerned. No, no, and I mean that's kind of why twenty games or twenty five games is a good kind of time to start really doing those calculations. Is because a I think you've got now enough games where you can actually kind of learn why a team might be different than how you expected them to be. But it's also then you start you know by that point enough season has accumulated where it actually does affect you know the outlying teams in either direction would have to change dramatically to kind of you know for them to move dramatically all right well we've got all the major sports rolling now so a few more weeks of enjoying that before some start falling off but this is a moment with all four enjoy it all right guys that has been three quarters of Fortin and we still have a quarter to go oh hold on that's two that's been two we've quarters two quarters to go come back and join You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Some combination of us are here every week. This week has been everybody, but we just dropped Adi Weiner. He had to go do some things. It's still Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Open lines still. And again, jump in on Twitter or email Twitter's at W Moneyball email is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We haven't talked about football. Somehow we've held off on the main sport from the fall guys. Uh, we're six games into the NFL season. We're seven games into the college football season. Let's talk about NFL. What's interesting to you? What caught your eye this past weekend in the NFL? Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, go ahead. I've got I've got one trivia question for you guys. Um, what quarterback, which is play, who has played every game for their team, is has the least number of interceptions so far in this season? After have played every game. That's all. I'm not going to be able to answer that. I'll, I'll admit it's a fun one. I'm, I'm, uh, you're asking it, so I'm, I'm inclined to wonder how many interceptions Mac Jones has thrown. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's pro- it, just because it's not Mac Jones? No. Who is it? Carson Wentz has one <laughs> interception in six games. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's good trivia. That's good trivia. Yeah. Well, no, that, that I mean, is like, especially I, given the criticism given to him in Philadelphia about throwing a ton of picks. Yes. No. And I mean, like, I, I want to kind of talk, you know, I think it's a fun trivia fact because certainly it's unexpected given that he threw, you know, 50 of them or something like that last year. Um, I think, it, you know, I mean, that was one of the kind of talking points going into the season um, was whether or not he would actually kind of show improvement in a new situation, perhaps reunited with Frank Reich, who was his offensive coordinator in the early years in Philadelphia and early returns. I mean, there, there's certainly they there's you know, they don't have a great record. Um, but you know, they, he's playing well. 
They're well, not horrible. They're not team. a horrible, no, they're not horrible team. One. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I think they certainly are going to be in the conversation for the wild card. You know, if, if they continue to play, if he continues to play at, you know, kind of a, you know, slightly above average level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's caught my eye is that for some reason, I just have the sense that the AFC is more wide open than the NFC. I don't know why I think that I, you know, because if you look at the records, like, I mean, obviously the only undefeated team is in the NFC, but I, let's forget about the Cardinals six and I, yeah, they're six and oh, but they could have lost a couple of games too, yeah. but they're a good team. Obviously the Bucks are a good team, but let me tell you, they could have lost a couple of games too. easily lost a couple oh, yeah. of games, especially yeah. to the Cowboys. They could have lost. Uh, they could have lost to the Falcons. I mean, they, they could have lost. They almost a couple. lost that Patriots game, man. They almost oh, at least that was close. It was no, close. no, no. Absolutely. Well, As a matter of fact, the only Eric, really good team they've played, elite team they've played, is the Rams, and they lost by double digits. So they're not playing. I mean, as Brady always says, I, mean, I would they don't call give the Cowboys the- an elite team too. But yeah, sure. yeah, it's true. They and they won on the last second field goal. Yeah. Um, so. I, but to me, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to call them. I mean, I, Eric, I love your question, but I want to extend it to both conferences and say, I kind of feel like this is one of the more wide open years we've had in yeah. recent years. I, I think what you're really responding to, Eric, is yeah. the Chiefs don't look as dominant yeah, as they exactly. have over the last That's really few what it, years. And yeah. so things just seem more wide open. I mean, yeah, you know, the also, last couple of years, we were just riding the Chiefs into the Super Bowl and we were correct to do so. Um, this year, you know, I, this year I still would not bet against being in the Super Bowl, but you know they obviously don't look it yet. Well, let's yeah, let's but, count how many teams could you imagine winning the Super Bowl? Like, so I've, go, I've given my list. Deep. Here's my list. Here's my right. list. I, I I could say the Cardinals, but no, I actually don't see it. I don't see the I don't see the Cardinals winning the Super Bowl. I think in the NFC, I obviously I see the Bucks, our potential team to win the Super Bowl. I think the Rams with. Um, uh, why can't the, the Lions quarterback, the old Lions quarterback, well, Stafford, Stafford. 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 Yeah, yeah. the Lions, the Rams great. can definitely win the Super Bowl. The way Dak Prescott is playing. And let me just tell you, I think the cow, I thought the Bucks had the best receiving core I've ever seen. I think the Cowboys have a better receiving core than the Bucks right now. Yeah. I do. Cause I think, yeah. I think Mike Evans is hurt a little bit, whatever. I think the Cowboys can win it. And look, I can never bet against the great Aaron Rodgers. I mean, they weren't that far off from beating the Bucs last year. Those four teams in the NFC, Bucks, Rams, Cowboys, Packers, I could see any of them winning the Super Bowl. In the AFC, I'd love to see a wild card like the Chargers, but realistically, I think it's the Bills. I'm going to say the Titans only because of the greatness of Derrick Henry. It's the best running back I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I only saw Peyton wow. at the end of his career. He's, wow. I only saw Peyton at the end of his career. No, well, Derek Henry's about, about if you Earl take Earl Campbell at his peak. No, man. well, let me tell you a stat I just saw last <laughs> night. So Derek Henry, if you take a three year period and let's call that a, you know, a peak period for a running back, a running back that is about right. is going to be peak for three years. Derek Henry is going to shatter the record by over 600 yards for the most yardage in any three-year period in NFL history by any I running back. Per, I need per game, per game. You can't do it that way. Well, so his average, he averages 4.9 yards a carry is what his yeah. average is. And so uh, it would be, they're saying 5,800 yards for him in, a, in something like 48 games. So he's averaging about 120 yards a game. So that's about a 1,900, that's 1,900 yards a season. Well, that's obviously good. Earl number, Campbell had eighteen fifty one year. I remember Earl, Earl Campbell had sixteen hundred. Well, I mean, and I think he's actually next. at like one hundred and thirty-eight yards a game or something. I mean, he is on pace. I mean, peak. No, this year, this but, year, I'm saying, know, like, over this three-year period, oh, right. he's yeah. going to average nineteen hundred yards a season. 
and 120 yards a game. So I, I, the per game thing is the interesting bit. And, well, Jim and, Brown, the record right now, I think is, I think it's Jim Brown at 99 point something yards a game is the all time record of yards for, per game for, for his a running career. Back. For a, for a career. career. Yeah, first career. Take, take Brown's peak three years. Take O.J. Simpson's peak three years. In um, terms of number of yards. And let's I mean, I will say, Kay, that he's, yeah. chal- he, he's, he's on pace to – he's within very close to the, like, single-season record, Deckerson's single-season record. And given how running backs are used these days – I agree with all that. I agree with all that. I just want to yeah. be, be kosher and also, so in those, That's why the only reason I'm including the Titans. So, to me, in the AFC, you asked – Bills, Titans, Chiefs, and Ravens. I think those are the four teams. So I would be surprised. But you just said eight teams. That's that's a yeah. pretty long list. No, I I understand that. That's my yeah. belief. I, you asked me, I, I, where I do I see it? Eight. I think you're wrong to dismiss Arizona. I mean, I, I know they're not the, a perfect team, and I know they've won some squeakers, but they've got some exciting talent, and it's matured. Even no, and I, I, I wish we could kind of go back in time. And, like, like I, I think to Eric's point, and for my to my own point, like I think because the Chiefs just seemed less done, it seems more wide open. Like I feel like I would have had a, a smaller list of teams at this same point last season that I would have given realistic odds of winning the Super Bowl. Yes, in part because in the back of my mind, I'm like, there's maybe two or three teams I think could beat the Chiefs last year. And that's this it. Year, yeah, right. That's right. That's right. And but I you know? but let me just say this is this is the way I'm thinking about it. If you tell me the Cardinals are playing against a Tom Brady-led Bucks team or a Matthew Stafford-led Rams team or a Dak Prescott-led Cowboys team or an Aaron Rodgers-led Packers team in the NFC Championship game, I'm not favoring the Cardinals against I'm not any favoring, of those four. I'm not favoring, but I'm, 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 it's appointment viewing It's because yeah. it could happen, and it's fun to watch. It could happen. I'm not believing them yet. But yeah, I, if, I, I, if, I, if we had done our teams uh, that could be, you know, teams that could win the Super Bowl at the same time last year, would the Bucs have been one of the teams? No, even with Tom Brady, I don't no. think so. Right? No, <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, no. good point. Yeah. Good point, Shane. Let's talk a little bit about this week's slate. It's not the best NFL slate I've ever seen, but let's get some picks. I got two guys here. I just had Eric last time. Let's get a few picks against the line. And our buddy Ron Yurko was encouraging us to start keeping score. It has been a little. I think pandemic yeah. threw us off of our scorekeeping. We need to get back to it. Maybe we can get back to it this week. Let's pick. I've got a few games lined up. Um, KC Tennessee. Against yeah. the unbeatable Derrick Henry and uh, the questionable Kansas City Chiefs, this is a five-and-a-half-point line. The Chiefs are favored five-and-a-half going into Tennessee. Who do you got? Before I answer, can I just say, wow, for the Titans, they played the Bills and the Chiefs back-to-back? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is, that's, um, that's awesome football, by the way. Um, but while for the Bills, they played the Chiefs and the Titans back-to-back. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. Um, I... I, I like the Chiefs. I like the Chiefs giving the points in that game. I, yeah. I'm still not a believer in the Titans. I like the Titans. I like Derrick Henry. Um, I just the Chiefs haven't played one good game yet, in my view, and they're due. And I think this is the week. They know they have to win this game. They lose this game. They're three and four. They're not out of the playoffs, but you can forget home field. They're not catching the. They're not catching the uh, the uh, Ravens at that point. I don't think they're catching the Titans at that point. They're not catching the Bills at that point. Matter of fact, uh, they may not even win their division. They're the la- actually technically by tiebreakers, they're in the last place in their division. So I like the Chiefs in that game. Shane. Yeah, I, I I like the Chiefs too. I think in part because their key, obviously, their biggest strength is Henry. But like the Chiefs could easily. Uh, 
you know, by taking an early lead, change the game script such that Henry is kind of minimized. So I, I'm, I'm, I like the Chiefs in that one too. All right, I'm going to go the other side. I've been staying with the Chiefs because, of course, they're the Chiefs. At some point, you step off the bus, and yeah. the Massey Peabody has it a little bit the other side. Not a huge edge, but a little bit the other side. We'd make the line three and a half. So if we're going to get five and a half, I'll go with the hometown Tennessee Titans, and I'll ride that Derrick Henry. Um, let's do another one. Since he's going into Baltimore, since he has been firming up a little bit. Uh, no, I feel like every AFC North game is worth highlighting this year because that division is, you know, I mean, hey, it's a lot going on. Who knows with on. some of those teams what, what's going on week to week? But yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, so Baltimore is given six points here. Uh, Jamar yeah. Chase is having a good season. After all, Burrow maybe yeah. pulling it together. Obviously, the Ravens coming off a big victory over the Chargers. Who do you got? Ravens minus six hosting the Bengals. I think Cincinnati, I'm not saying they're going to win. I think, I think if, 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 if it's about, like, I, I think Cincinnati covers. Okay. I think it's going to be a close game. Um, Cincinnati probably loses because that's what Cincinnati usually does in close games. Oh, oh. But, but, um, but yeah, I like, I like Cincinnati's chances at least keeping that one close, which is not okay. something we would say up until this season. So that's great. Okay. I, I like the Ravens. I like the Ravens and giving the points. I think the Ravens are uh, coming into their own. They've escaped with a couple of great wins. They got a lot of confidence, and um, I, I, I like the Ravens in that game, given the points. It's All impressive right. what they're doing. The Ravens with the injuries they've had. They've had like San oh Francisco Forty ers level injuries. Absolutely. Oh my god! It's unbelievable. I'm, a, yeah. I'm with you entirely. I'm going to go Ravens as well. Massey Peabody makes the line seven point one, so it's really not much of an edge. But if I got to pick. I'm going to go that way. And I think they might be figuring some things out, which is me too much. Um, Last one will go Monday night game. New Orleans Saints go up to Seattle. They just lost a tough one against Pittsburgh. They are giving five points to the hometown Seahawks. What do you think? Man, I mean, mean, New Orleans (laughs) is one of those teams. I love that. I love Jameis Winston. I think, uh, honestly, I love, teams with Jameis Winston on them because they're all over the place you just really <laughs> never know it's so great yeah. um how do you factor but, in desperation by the two and four Seahawks yeah right yeah no it's true I mean I'm gonna I, I I'm still gonna I'm gonna take New Orleans I think uh, Winston lights them up um okay and uh yeah Seattle just looks like they're in disarray right now to be honest mm-hmm. I mean they did I, I mean they, I guess they played tough against the Steelers but you know Geno Smith is not I'm not so do we Steelers. know for a fact that Russell's not playing yeah, he's that's played. a good question. No, no, he's, he's for sure not playing. He's on the okay. In, okay. he's on the injured reserve. He, he's out for a minimum of three games. Right, right, okay. right. They did pass him on IR. So that 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 I'll, I'll take I'll take the same. And I'll take I'll take New Orleans too. I think actually, but less so because of Jameis. I think New Orleans defense is really good. I think mm-hmm. they're going to teach. I, I think they're going to teach Geno Smith a lesson in that game. And I like New Orleans, and I think they'll score enough points. A twenty-eight to seventeen final kind of thing. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm also, so we're all three on New Orleans for this game. I admit it's the biggest edge of the three I gave you. Massey Peabody makes it 7.7. So it's a 2.7 point edge. I always kind of want a short Pete Carroll. I, I, and uh, and I'm, my reason for pulling for the Seahawks is Russell Wilson and he's gone. So my heart is with it as well. All right, guys, let's jump over to the college football side of things. Have y'all been paying much attention? Do you think it's interesting? Is it just going to be boring in the end after all of these upsets? Or are we just going to end up with a playoff of, say, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oklahoma after all in the end? Well, that's what that you know for everybody that's been listening to us for almost eight years. That's, again, they're going to screw the team out like Cincinnati – because right now, if Alabama runs the table, 
and Georgia only loses to Alabama in the SEC championship game, they have to take a Big Ten team. There's three undefeated Big Ten. A Big Ten team is going. Big 12 team, Oklahoma, unless Oklahoma or Oklahoma State loses one before playing, one of them is going to go. Well, I just named all four teams. That's it. There's no Cincinnati. And so Eric, we, we know we know where your college football goat lives. That's all I have to say. Uh, I, I think you're too quick to, to, to go down this path. You're, you're like ready to strike up the, the rant. I, I don't it's not obvious to me. None of this is obvious to me. One, so much craziness happens in college football. No, but you agree. Someone from the Big Ten. We didn't think that a couple weeks. Someone from the Big Ten is going. Yeah, well, I, I think the only weakness even, I would say is the Big Twelve. Right? Or like, no, oh, guys, right? there's no. Y'all are saying things with too much absolutism. You can't say that about college football. Anytime, much less this year. We don't know what's going to happen. Look, the Big, the Big Ten. All these guys might eat each other yet. Heck, Iowa lost last week to Purdue. That's not supposed to happen. That took the undefeated team out. But you of don't think a one West. win, a one win, one sorry, one loss Big Ten team will go? There'll be at least yeah. one of the Big Ten teams yeah. that has no more I, than one loss. I think the probability we 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 haven't run a college football sim in a while, and we need to. But the probability of a Big Ten team making it through, given that Michigan State, Michigan are both undefeated, and Ohio State sitting there looking better than ever. And Penn um, State is fine. I mean, they, they lost their quarterback, which hurts. But, I mean, they're, they're a one-loss team also. One of them's going to have one loss or none. Pre- presumably, unless some weird things happen, like Iowa, you know, upsets them in the Big Ten Championship or something. So I'm, I'm inclined to believe that. In the Big 12, you don't know. You really don't know what's going to happen. That's Cincinnati's I mean, hope. They've got a hope for – because let me tell you, I look – or, well, Eric, or okay, by no, the way, okay. Georgia. How about Georgia beating yeah. Alabama in the big in the SEC championship game, and then it's just Georgia from the SEC. Well, this is this is the most interesting thing. So, assuming that somebody out of the Big Twelve comes through, and and then Cincinnati's fate would depend on what happens in the SEC. By the way, I don't know that's going to happen with Big Twelve at all. But the big question, the most fun thing to think about is if Alabama makes it to the SEC final, loses to Georgia, an undefeated Georgia. You're sitting, but it's still sitting there like number two in all the power ranking models, Alabama. Do you take Cincinnati over them? And I think the answer is yes. It's a two loss, non SEC champion, Alabama, or an undefeated Cincinnati that started the season number eight. Now it's in the top five. They beat Notre Dame, they beat Indiana. But here's the thing right now, if Alabama played Indiana, the line would be Cincinnati. Believe I mean, if, if Alabama played Cincinnati, the line would be massive. It would be, I mean, it would be massive. It'd be pushing 20 points. It would, <laughs> it would be more, it would be more than like 20 points. It's, it's really, it's a little hard to say because. And by the way, Mr. Cincinnati here would take Alabama and give the 20. You're all about principle on this. thing. Absolutely. About well, actually depends which principle you're talking about, AL or LE. Yeah, right. Exactly. So when it comes to betting, Eric's going to put aside his, ALs. Um, oh, LEs. I'm sorry. The LEs. LEs. Yeah. Not the LEs. Um, but the interesting thing about Cincinnati, guys, listen to this. So when we run our Massey Peabody models, we can do them with or without priors. And if we consider our priors on Cincinnati, we don't make them, but about the 30th best team in the country. And they, they're sitting there at like plus eight. Alabama's at like plus 31. So it's a 23 point difference. However, if we set aside our priors and just look at what they've done on field, they're about the third best team in the country. 
and right, even with Alabama, it's remarkable the difference the priors make when you evaluate Cincinnati. So the question, guys, is, as it, we've had these conversations before, we had them about Arkansas just a couple of weeks ago, what role should you place on the priors? And it's I think by the end of the season, they've played a full season this year. I think it, I, I, would go, I would go very little weight on the priors, and I don't see any way that a two-loss Alabama team goes over a no-loss Cincinnati team. I'm not going to say none, 5%. Yeah, I agree politically. I think that's the right way to go. I think, you know, making a line in that game is more interesting. And priors do matter late into the season, especially in college football, because it's so noisy and institutions matter, and they don't play each other that 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 much and not many games. And so you got to lean more on, but boy, do we wish Cincinnati had one great game left. Well, I I think we have a good chance of seeing them yet. So don't give up on your dream. Eric. All right, guys, that has been three quarters. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. We're delighted to welcome back to the show Matt Mueller. Matt is COO of Huddle. Some of you football crazies know what Huddle is, or you think you do anyway. Huddle kind of became known for its recruiting technology in American football at the high school level, really high school and college. But since then, these guys are like taking over the world, and we need to hear about it every now and then. We've had them on before. Glad to have you back. Matt, how are you today? We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Cade. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, delighted to have you on. Um, so uh, how are things in Lincoln? You guys are based in Lincoln. The, the origins of this thing go back to Lincoln, you know, University of Nebraska students. Are people going to hold? How are the Husker fans holding on? Are, is Scott Frost going to make it? through to 2022 are they going to give him another year how's the feeling in lincoln you know i uh i wish we could win a, a few more football games i think yeah. the feeling it would be a lot happier you know even just a couple weeks ago it felt like we were about to about to turn a corner here we played some yeah. uh, really competitive games even though we were losing uh tough one this last weekend against minnesota but hopefully yeah. they'll, they'll rebound this weekend or two weekends from now off weekend this weekend I don't know. I've, I've been kind of pulled in for some reason. I'm pulling for Frost. I don't know why. And I was, I, I kept an eye on that Minnesota game and I, I was a little disappointed to see the way it went. Nothing against Minnesota, but it has got to be fun, you know, living and making it happen from such a college football, crazy town. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a quick run through on what huddle does, because some of our listeners won't be familiar. And I know it's, it's gotta be tough to talk about the whole enterprise, but th- th- let's just say the seeds of this thing were, high school football kids could have their own individualized highlight reels of their play. And that was fun to share with their uncles. Like my nephews did with me back in the day playing three, a ball out in West Texas, but more importantly, college football teams could identify talent and they could do so from around the country. They didn't have to send people necessarily out to the game. They could just literally Saturday morning, dial it up and see what happened the night before on whatever prospect they were interested in. And I, personally think this changed the, the recruiting landscape of college football, which is interesting, but y'all did this and then you kind of went from there. So what has happened since then? What, what else are you involved with? Yeah. So you nailed it on the, on the American football high school side, right? That's where we got our start. That's our grassroots. It's helping, uh, helping football coaches and athletes connect around video, right? So whether it's recruiting or whether it's um, scouting and preparing for your next opponent, uh, everything we've done with huddle was about, 
helping teams use video to effectively communicate, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, their recruiting potential or the, or the game plan. From there, we've grown uh, really, really quickly into a bunch of different sports. So the next step for us was basketball. We're an American company. We're selling to a lot of high schools. The basketball teams are right next door, right? So we should be able right. to go sell a men's women's basketball team uh, and make it work. Um, but as we started to do that, we knew we wanted to take ourselves to be, a, you know, the technology and the need that we were solving, communicating around video and bringing data and video to make more informed decisions, whether it's in, you know, game planning or, or scouting recruitment, that need isn't just limited to, you know, American football or, or just even, you know, the U S right. It's, it's a global thing. So we looked at how we can scale this across the globe. Uh, and since that time uh, we've really expanded into 38 different sports around the world. We, uh, we have over 180,000 teams. Hold on, hold on, hold on. 38 different sports. What are you talking about 38 different sports? There's only 30. like 14 or something. What do you, uh, mean? you know, if you ask me to name them all, it's crazy. But have you, if you've never watched netball or, uh, you know, highlight, it's very interesting. Well, uh, speaking of that, of my son's a D1 squash player. Is squash one of your sports? Squash is one of our sports. Uh, we serve, <laughs> uh, you know, national teams uh, as we go in and work with Olympic committees around the world. Um, and there's lots of teams that use our software to, you know, analyze performance and help them on all fronts, whether it's recruiting or just getting better day to day or scouting their upcoming. Opponent. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Well, Matt, take, let me, let me what about that Olympic sport where the horses dance? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. You know, like what, uh, I'm sure you saw the video with uh, Snoop Dogg and, uh, you know, it's, it's hilarious watching that, uh, equestrian, uh, we, we serve some teams, uh, Matt, you have to pardon Shane cause he's a little crazy about horses. <laughs> It turns out. Hey, Eric, one second. Let me ask a qualifying sure. question before we go. Yeah, mine was a qual. Go ahead. Just a little more concrete. If, if, if Eric's son's team used your product for college squash, what yep. would that look like? Like what, what exactly are they doing with those data? So they have a, um, so when we think about what teams do with our software, uh, they'll record video or, or load the video into our system and then they will tag key moments to them. It might be, you know, squash, I'm sorry, I don't know the terminology as well. But if you think about from a basketball, it might be on a, a turnover or it might be a transition play. It might be about uh, when a player was out of position that they wanted to bring up, uh, you know, at halftime for their team to discuss. Or it might be about a missed cross from a right wing to a left striker that was open in the box. Uh, and so they'll tag these key moments and philosophies of things that did or didn't happen uh, that allow them to, in aggregate, then bring up, you know, very quickly bring up the moments to coach around that and, and talk about how to make someone, you know, better at what they do. Uh, or if you're scouting your opponents um, to think about, Hey, here's the things that we've noticed in their game plan. And from a recruiting perspective, it's about pulling your key moments together and producing a highlight tape to then share to, you know, recruiters across the world. So one of the fundamental roles that your technology plays is facilitating this tagging process and then the organization and replay and use of that once it's tagged. You've got it. And then we'll build reports around that to, uh, to make that data usable. Right. So Data in aggregate uh, is, you know, hey, I can see every shot uh, that happened in the course of a, a match. It's less relevant. If I can tell you and bring you reports to help you simplify that, that's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, uh, you, I'm just going to build on the word you used, which is, in fact, I remember this question I asked you last time, and I just want to see what progress has been. Use the word scalable. And sure. so one way to make it scalable is everyone tags their own content. Another way to make it scalable is to use, you know, artificial intelligence and computerized video ingestion and let the computer tag the content. So which way do you guys work today? And secondly, when there is video content, do you guys provide summary metrics other than tagging? Like, I don't know, the speed of a basketball player or how fast someone's running or something, or is that kind of next gen huddle? 
So two part question here. Uh, you missed one probably gap in the middle around scalable of actually just having someone else do it for you. Uh, well, that's so from, uh, good you know, point. You that's another code. possibility. Yeah. Uh, and so we blend across all of that for tagging data. So teams can tag their own data. And in fact, many teams, uh, if you want live statistics, they're doing that themselves in person. I want to make adjustments in between, you know, uh, if you think about an American football team, defense can come off the field. They can make adjustments live right then on what they're seeing, right? If you're looking about basketball, oftentimes, even at the NBA, they are making adjustments at halftime. It's a very short window, uh, but their, their analysts are looking at what's happening on that on the court. So they're tagging live. Um, there are many teams, including the NBA, including professional leagues, that actually pay us to tag their matches for them. And then we do that through a blend of people and computer vision, right? And so uh, anybody who tells you you can 100% tag a match in, uh, in computer vision is just lying to you at this point. Uh, I, I can say that pretty openly on this, uh, but you know th- there are ways to use uh, those pairs to to make things more scalable and efficient, and that's what we're spending our time on. Matt, one second, because I think it's going to come up again later on. Let's make sure everyone understands computer vision. My simple understanding of it is it's kind of the alternative technology to motion tracking. So motion tracking, players are wearing some kind of device that indicates where they are at all moments, and that's been great because it's very precise. Downside is people have to wear it. Computer vision says, hey, we can just look at the video and code these things up and we can kind of extract the same data. It's just, so now if they can do that, it's great because you don't have to make anybody wear anything. But the challenge is to be precise enough to do it well. So there's kind of a horse race between these two technologies. Motion tracking gets a head start, but computer vision is coming. Is this fair to say? And is that a fair representation of what computer vision does? Yeah, you're 100% on. And, and there are ways that you can do computer vision very expensive. Uh, And so, you know, in the NBA, they have a great system in place that will do this for them. You know, multiple cameras, very expensive install, uh, very heavy weight, but it doesn't scale even to college uh, and it doesn't scale definitely to high schools. And so what we're trying to do is completely do that through one camera angle fixed, you know, in a gym. So still provide a high level of precision and accuracy, uh, but do it at a scalable, you know, algorithm from, you know, imagine one camera mounted on a wall. Okay, so yeah, I, want to come be... back to, I want to come back to that in a moment. Let's just kind of put a pin in that because I didn't mean to sidetrack us from Eric's question. Eric was trying to understand the scalability, but you've just kind of jumped as far. We'll talk about cameras here in a second. Shane was trying to get in. Well, I, my mind's about the cameras, so you can do Eric okay. first. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to know if there's like a million people out there that are working for Huddle like part-time. You know, can I work for Huddle part-time if I want to watch? I'm watching sports anyway, so why don't I just sit here with a tagging machine and you guys pay me to do it? You know, there are other companies. I see Cade laughing. You don't see a smile on my face. I'm not laughing. <laughs> Eric has infinite capacity, Matt. He's just looking for new things to do with his infinite capacity. It's, it's fine. We'll get you a pot of coffee and you sit there at night and just tag, <laughs> tag away while you're watching the match. Uh, no, so it's uh, there are teams that do, there are companies that do that. We feel for quality and scale. Um, we run our own back office operations. And so we have a whole team of people that are trained on this, um, that know exactly what they're looking for. And they are watching. Their, their day-to-day is actually pretty sweet. They just get to watch sports games all day and just tag them. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a pretty fun job. Um, but it's really consistent as compared to, you know, just outsourced ad hoc tagging. Uh, what that, that gives us though, is we can actually start to track efficiency of each rep, uh, efficiency of what they're tagging. We can actually spend a detailed amount of time with them talking about what's hard for them to see on film and what we can make their workflows more efficient, which then coming back to some of this earlier pieces allows us to actually hone our computer visual algorithms sure. much right. more effectively because we can learn from the processes. We also then have the largest set of ground truth for tagging, like one of the hardest things with computer vision is actually getting ground truth tagging to teach and train your algorithm more effectively. Uh, but right. we'll tag over 2 million games this year uh, at a very consistent level of data. So to have that much data just analyzed just this year, 
uh, allows our algorithms to learn faster and faster and faster. So then we can, you know, push things through and, and go deeper and faster. The way you're talking about computer vision makes plain that it's not like some program that's bought off the shelf or it's not even a brand. It's a general umbrella technology. And you've got algorithms, you've got huddle algorithms that have, they're totally huddle proprietary and you're revolving them all the time, but they fall under the code of, they fall under the umbrella of computer vision. That's kind of all computer vision is, right? Exactly. Yeah, you've got it. We built our own algorithms that are just, you're just training and, and teaching them how to be more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of leads into my question, which was uh, basically acknowledging what a tremendous challenge that must be from the computer vision part. Because I mean, again, you've got, you know, if you're using like a single camera, that's got to be very different, you know, sort of a diff- very different framing, very different lighting, like in every single situation within a sport. And then you say you're across like 30 plus sports. I it, I don't know how, I, I guess maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about how siloed the training of the algorithms is between sports or whether there's a lot of you, can you actually borrow information across sports with that computer vision or is like, you know, doing computer vision with basketball and in, in an entirely separate enterprise from doing it for, with uh, football. Uh, so there are people out of my organization that can probably talk about this at an infinite level of detail more than I can. So, but I will, I will give you my, my take. There are definitely things that we are learning from sport to sport that we should be able to borrow, right? So imagine mm-hmm. the way an individual athlete stands in their gait. That is that training your algorithm to understand limb detection and how people move. That's the same across every sport, right? So, and it works. Um, the, one of the biggest challenges that we've had to, to work through, um, if you think about the quality of film of, uh, and just use the NFL, your experience of watching the NFL is pretty much the same camera angle more or less same angle every single match. So it's actually pretty easy to do and teach. I should say easy. It's easier to do computer vision across that because it's consistency of angle, consistency of quality. When you move into high school sports or amateur sports, uh, to your point, right? Not only is the the lighting different, but my gosh, the quality of camera can be different. The angle in which it is filmed, it is different. You know, uh, the pitch homography is different. And so you have to think about uh, and train your algorithm to adjust for each of those things. But once you teach it how to account for that in American football, teaching that same thing for soccer is, you know, the algorithm is, it's not too different on that piece. For sure, there are customizations, but, um, but once you're learning those kind of things, you can start to apply your algorithm. We actually do that a lot. We will, you know, we start by focusing on a handful of sports. So pick soccer, for instance, is one of our algorithms, but then we'll actually just run a field hockey game through it and just see how it does. Right. And see like, can, can it handle this thing? And you'd be surprised actually, maybe not. Uh, field hockey actually tracks really well with soccer, uh, even though it's different sports. But but overall, you can just put a game through the algorithm and it, it actually handle, handles it very well um, because ultimately the same things you're learning like apply more or less, right? You might have to tweak it, but it, but it works. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the, the enterprise here. Why are you going to this trouble of putting up cameras and figuring out how to code the the raw video stream into, into analyzable bits. What, what's, what's going on? Like how does that fit into your strategy as a business? So, so go back to where we got our start, right? And you're talking about American football recruiting. We really believe that every athlete in the world deserves their chance, right? No matter where they are, no matter what level of uh, sport that they're, you know, what country they're in, what level of financial um, status that their parents are in. Um, we believe every athlete should get their shot, right? So if we can build an algorithm uh, that sits on a camera that will quantify uh, statistically like, hey, these athletes fit a profile of what you're looking for. And it turns out they're in Cameroon. Uh, coaches will go and find a way to bring them into the organization. And we've proven that uh, ad hoc. We've gone and filmed tournaments in Cameroon. 
and had players from tournaments that have never been filmed before suddenly sign professional contracts in France and in the UK. Uh, oh all know what we're doing. So if we can find a way to scale that globally, uh, you know, it really fits with our mission of helping, you know, make every moment count and helping every athlete kind of get the shot they deserve. So if you think about that um, and what we can do from unlocking potential on a global sport, we can raise the level of sport by bringing the best athletes here. We can raise, you know, give every athlete their shot that they want to, to achieve. And honestly, it's pretty fun to build really cool sports tech and apply that to, uh, to that challenge. So that's kind of how we think about it. Right? just take the early step of, empowering athletes to tell their story through video. And now let's just take it and scale it across the globe in every sport. Matt, let's talk about what, what the professional teams saw in your Cameroon athletes that allowed them to at least take another look. What interested them? Because it's not obvious. How, how, how can they judge the player whenever the, the conditions are so different? Most importantly, his teammates or her teammates and the opponents. So what, what exactly do you think is being passed that is usable in that way when you go out to such a, diff, a far-flung environment? I understand the enterprise. Love the, love the mission. I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about some of the challenges and how, you, how the, you and the teams overcome them. Sure. So even if, if you would have reset back to um, prior to COVID, uh, just, just look at the U.S. and I'll come back to Cameron here in a second. Most coaches would tell you they want to go see these athletes at some point right? They want to go see them in person to like really see how they run, really see how they play, really work them out. This cross cuts every sport. But the problem is deciding who you want to go see and making sure that you get the most value out of doing that. And the problem for Cameroon is flying to Cameroon is not easy, right? Getting out of the Cameroon airport to that, that pitch that you want to go see is not easy, right? Getting to uh, Kansas City to go see a, you know, U.S. soccer showcase, not that hard, right? Getting to Peach Jam in Atlanta, Pretty straightforward if you want to go see some of the best basketball talent that's coming up. But if you want to go find these athletes in more remote locations, that might actually be better fits for your organization. It becomes very tricky. And Huddle actually is unlocking that, that layer for them. That's maybe a layer that many teams skipped, which is you can see every athlete that's available and decide who you want to go see and where, right? So you may actually skip the Peach Jam and go to a different tournament in Las Vegas, go to a different tournament in Los Angeles to go see a better basketball player. And then Cameroon unlocks, you know, even an even broader global landscape for you. You still want to see them. You might still fly them in for a showcase, but you can be more direct with your spend and more targeted in who you go see then. Okay. So in that way, it's, it's not unlike your origins in providing video for some kid in New Mexico playing football that the guys in Florida can look at without having to visit. I, I, one of the reasons I asked the question was I wondered to what extent there are any universals in terms of athletic ability that can be observed and coded via computer vision? Like, to what extent can you determine an athlete's speed or agility or jumping? It's something like that that would completely translate, but you would have to measure it precisely enough via your camera and your computer vision in order to convey that to someone thousands of miles away. We are working towards that. I just, at this point, I don't think coaches trust that data enough, right? They still, you know, they'll say, Oh, great. You just ran a 40. Now I want to come watch you run a 40 in person. <laughs> right. And it's like, okay. uh, and there are different versions of that, but, um, but yeah, we are, we are constantly pushing towards that to help coaches, but ultimately we know that seeing someone in person is, is probably the final deciding factor for at least many top end elite organizations around the world. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, Matt, I was just going to relate what you're doing to a huge bunch of academic literature. So um, it's what we'd like to do here on our show. Uh, the first paper I ever wrote was one all at the when I worked at the Educational Testing Service on, so who do you bring in what's called the master rater for? Well, you bring it in for the person for which the uncertainty reduction is the highest and the potential is high. So if everyone agrees this person passes, you don't need the master rater for that. If everyone agrees this person fails. And so one nice thing about Huddle is in some sense, you don't need to go to the five-star event because everyone agrees that person's going to get a look. So number one, I love the way you do it. You could also relate it to what we call the classic arm bandit problem, which is who do I pull the arm for? I don't pull the arm for the one I have certainty about. I pull the arm for the one where I potentially have uncertainty about. So I love the framing of Huddle as a resource, as an optimal resource allocation tool, because I think there's a lot to say about it. So I was just impressed by the way you framed that. Thanks. I, uh, I can't take full credit for it. You know, you talk to a lot of other organizations around the world and they, they feed me these things and I just come back and re, uh, re- <laughs> you know, it's not really No, fun. it's just nice to tie it as, you know, again, you can, you know, you don't need to see somebody yet who you have high certainty about. You need to, you know, think of it as a pyramid. You need to sure. provide resources to the uncertain. And it also is a great mission. Let me just say it's, it's a tremendous mission as well. well Matt, speaking, speaking of that mission, what, where is the boundary for data collection? Let's pick a sport because I'm sure it varies by sport, but just say, you know, uh, soccer, because it's the biggest one probably in the world. What, what is the boundary? Like, I assume there's a lot of data being collected, you know, through many corners of the world at many levels, but at some point it peters out and, and, and clubs will be very hungry for those data and everyone's looking for the next kid to bring into their, into their system. So how would you characterize the limits of data collection right now across the world in soccer? And I assume y'all are right there on that frontier. Yeah, it would, the, the, the two limits that we run into and they actually are, they have roughly the same challenge, but it's, how do you do it at scale? Uh, how can you make the, the economics work at scale for capture? So when you're in the Peruvian second league, uh, where people are very interested in, in finding the film, but it doesn't make sense to necessarily have it on broadcast. Um, so how do you find a model that still allows that film to reach, you know, our systems so that we can run our algorithms against it? Uh, you know, you might actually talk, you know, flip that and talk about even in the UK, you're talking about the eighth division of, of football. Uh, same thing there, right? Like the economics don't make sense for it to be captured at broadcast. Uh, and when you don't have that broadcast revenue coming in, then there has to be some other way to still get teams to collect the video. That's why we are spending so much on automation, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily make sense to, if the broadcast video isn't just going to flow to us or people aren't going to just capture it by default, how can we help incentivize that piece? So a lot of times it's not in the, it's on the, that, those fringe levels. It's when broadcasting uh, the video in any capacity stops making sense outside of maybe to just mom or dad who couldn't be at the match. And it starts, that's, that's really where we found the edges and we push on that. Uh, either that, or, you know, again, in Cameroon uh, to, to keep going back to the well on this one is they just don't have the technology there or haven't thought about doing it previously. Um, you know, during COVID we weren't able to go to Cameroon and film this tournament, but they loved the results of it so much that they filmed it for us. They found a way to get handy cams to film it. Uh, but you know, that at scale, uh, it's tough, right? So the way we can find a way to, uh, to automate that through capture, it's a, it's really powerful, I think, but that's going to be, that, that's really one of the big challenges we're tackling. So my, my memory from our last conversation was that you guys were investing in camera technology. There's mm-hmm. some vertical integration there. And so you're talking about 
you would do that because of exactly this broadcast challenge. So you're going in and installing cameras. Is this right? Where otherwise there is no video available. That's, that's pretty remarkable to me. One that you would, that you would invest in the hardware because it seems to be that important to you, but also that it's possible to just kind of go plan a poll and run a camera up it. And then it's going to work in some way and the data are going to get sent and if I remember correctly, it's even like y'all are processing the data locally before it's sent because it's more efficient because otherwise you have to feed this raw stream, which sounds like a lot of data to convey. So do I have all that right? And where, where is that now? Where, where are you now? Because that's been, I think, maybe two years since we had that conversation. That's a, a great memory, Kate. Uh, we, uh, we have done, um, we, are, we are building and investing a lot in cameras. Uh, since we've talked to you, uh, just here in the U.S. this year, we'll have about 15,000 cameras in market. Um, between an indoor and outdoor. So think about it as we want to cover every field pitching court in the, in the U.S., but really every field pitching court in the world. Um, and we want to do this in a variety of ways. So we have three, three versions of our cameras. There's an indoor one, uh, there's an outdoor one, uh, and then we actually are just about, uh, you know, early next year we'll release it full throttle. We're going through a, a portable version where you could actually just take the camera out, set it up, and it'll start recording for you. You don't have to do any calibration or anything and just hit a button and it starts recording and it does all that for you live. The the chief users of these, they're teams, presumably, Some, somebody, a high school team or, or a, a low-level college team or even a, a little, an, an adventurous little league team, they might have these cameras. Is that right? Yeah, you got it here in the U.S. That's the case. Like in France, we've installed it with the uh, professional basketball league there. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, it's not just capped at, you know, competitive teams or, you know, amateur teams, uh, but that's been our target audience that we have sold to first, um, partly because, you can learn a lot from them and there's just more matches, right? There's just so many more games happening at the, at the, at the high school level than there really is. And so you can train your cameras to be more effective. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you guys use what I would call, uh, what most people would call stopping rules. And here's what I mean. Let's imagine there's a camera set up in some gym somewhere around the world and it's a three hour video. And about 25 minutes into this, you realize there's probably nothing coming out of this. There's no reason for us really to code the other two hours and 35 minutes of this. We're not, it's, it's just, it just isn't, there just isn't anything there that's likely to attract anything. Do you guys ever do that? Cause if you have a fixed resource pile of resources and you want to assign them optimally at some point, you might say there isn't ROI in the last two hours and 35 minutes of this video. We don't because we still, we still tackle, you think about like a junior varsity basketball team, right? Like, the, within it, in a really small team that maybe the game ends up 12 to eight. Right. And we've all probably sat through and watched one of these games before. There's not a, there's not a college player on that JV team, uh, but you still provide it because the school still gets value out of it. Right. The, they might use it for coaching to help their varsity team be better. Right. And they're, because those players will move to varsity eventually. So they want to do that. That athlete might use it for their own individual coaching. They might say like, why did we only score 12 points in this game? Uh, maybe I scored 10 of them, and, but I left 15 or 20 on the board. So well, let me modify my question then. Do you guys ever do non-paid work where you're potentially filming stuff with the potential that it will be sold? And then my suggestion becomes even more reasonable because someone didn't pay you to do this. You're like, wow, we just found someone. But you're like, eh, it's not worth the other 200, two hours and 35 minutes of our tagging. We've done some, but our primary focus tends to be around – if we're doing unpaid work, it's generally because someone has requested this film, right? So, so even this Cameroon tournament, right? Like I can't, I'm not, it's not like we just yeah. threw a dart at a map and went, this was something that after research with organizations around the world, they said like, look, there's a lot of talent that comes out of these two tournaments. Can, if you can help us find a way to get that content, it'd be really valuable. Uh, so in general, when we go, we do a little bit of research in advance rather than just 
spitballing and covering the world. Outside of that, our, our model is, you know, we're selling subscriptions to teams so that they can use our software. Uh, and then it, it puts the camera in. Now, if we can start, find a way to, to continue to build on that and build, you know, into, you know, putting cameras in places where they're not necessarily paying us, that's a, that's a benefit from a recruitment standpoint, but then we'll prioritize there. Matt, let's talk a little bit. We're going to run out of time here in a second. I want to hear a little bit more about your experience with the Premier League. It's, it's, a, a, it's a high profile thing and it's, and it's something, you know, it's probably the most watched sport in the world that the viewership on these matches is just unbelievable. But it's also, it, you know, as advanced as soccer has become analytically, my sense, my understanding is that it's not necessarily making it all the way to the decision making table yet i'm curious i mean and y'all are you know y'all are providing data and technology you're not necessarily providing analytics that say you know this player's better that player's worse or this is the value of that player so there's another layer before it gets to the decision i'm just curious based on your experience with the premier league how would you characterize where they are on data and analytics and sophistication compared to you know you you're 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 providing data into the nba which is about as advanced as it can get so just a little bit of insider view on the Premier League and where they stand. Because you guys are doing business with all the teams, are you not? 100% of Premier More League, 100% NBA. So we have a really good, uh, oh, good. Really good viewpoint into both. Yeah. Um, what's interesting at the, at the top end of the Premier League, you know, use Liverpool. Uh, they're, uh, you know, really interesting to watch. They have their own data analytics team, uh, data scientists. Will Spearman has written articles. He actually was a former data analyst or data scientist for us. Um, and they, I think there's actually an article maybe from a couple of years ago when they uh, won the uh, Premier League that he was their secret weapon. Um, okay. And he actually takes raw data from us. Uh, so we have an API and we give API access to teams so they can buy access to that where they can build their own models to actually yeah. build out this player is better than this player. This strategy would be more effective in this world because yeah. of the data that we have. That was going to be my so question, the- how your data gets fused with data from other parties. Right. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is every team has their own flavor and viewpoint on it. So just building metrics don't necessarily solve things for them, right? So you want to empower them to solve them more effectively. Uh, and that's how we take that look. Now, a Liverpool's at the very top end. There might be some other, other teams that don't have that same analytics resource. So they'll actually contract with us to come in and say, like, can you build on top of our API? Here's what we want to do and work through this. Uh, can you help us build out these kind of things? And we've done that with other clubs. Uh, where our solutions team will go in, we'll help build out, you know, their database, we'll help build out the, what things pull out of them, like what your philosophy is and answer those questions for them and then build those tools. But the Premier League, you know, everything is a, is a massive investment. There's different tiers, right? In the, the top end, they're trying to win the Premier League. Maybe at the bottom end, they're just trying to figure out how they can get 42 points because that's the average it keeps for you to stay in the Premier League and not get yeah. relegated, right? And right. so uh, it's a different strategy. And then they're looking at, what is the optimal time to sell one of the players on our team to a larger club so that we can take that money and invest it in the next iteration of players. Simultaneously, they're looking for the hidden gem somewhere else, you know, across Europe and one of the lower divisions. So it's a really unique challenge. Uh, and when you, when you're working with these clubs, because when you walk in, you have to put the right mindset in, is this the kind of club that is just trying to win the premier league? Or is this one of the clubs that's just trying to stay in the premier league because my conversation with them and how they will use our data and process it is different uh, but every investment is a huge investment because if you're one of those middle clubs and you make the wrong investment, that might mean relegation, yeah. which might mean uh, a massive, uh, massive switch. So they are really heavily using data to, you know, make it, you know, all of their recruitment challenges. And we play a key role in that by providing them both a video that backs up their decisions, but also, you know, large forms of data to, to kind of help plug in and go. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, yeah. it's really fun to, uh, to work with them and, and figure out, 
you know, how we can help them unlock the next, you know, the next athlete or find the next uh, right move inside the organization. Right. It does. It does sound like fun. Listen, before we go, I want to hear about this breakthrough summit. You guys are sponsors for this and we try to keep in our, in our, in our, in our vision, women athletes and women in the analytics world. And you guys are kind of at that intersection here. Can you tell us about the breakthrough summit? Yeah. Breakthrough summit is something we're really passionate about, right? It's about how do we empower and just help that next uh, to empower women in sports, right. And help bring them uh, and raise the, the bar there. Right. And, and in a, what's been historically a male dominated field, right. So uh, how can we help uh, find and, and connect with the, the next group of women, right. And, and just even show them what's available. And so uh, it's our third year partner with WeCoach to put together this breakthrough summit. It's free, it's all online and it's amazing. Uh, and so, you know, this year the speakers, like it's Becky Hammond, it's Condoleezza Rice. Uh, I mean, we're talking about heavy hitters that are going to come in and talk about, um, you know, not just, it's not going to be a, there's going to be coaching stuff there. There's going to be challenges that women face in sport. And it's not just going to be for women. That's the beauty of it, right? It's like, Hey, how can we as a sports community help uh, remove barriers and raise a bar for women here? And it's something that we're really passionate to be, uh, to be partnered with. We coach about, and it's grown every year. Um, we're, we're excited about uh, what we can do to continue to connect to that audience. Which women's sports are, are most actively involved with your technology and using your data? Uh, so, uh, we do a ton with, uh, women's basketball and a ton with women's soccer. Uh, those are, uh, I should, I'm overlooking the easiest ones, volleyball, uh, volleyball is the, uh, the most data centric sport, maybe in, in the world in terms of their actual, what they tag on match to match basis. Uh, and they go to a crazy level of detail. Our software actually produces, uh, 87 pages of reports for every volleyball game, uh, that happens. Like, so think about every college volleyball game, they're all tagged in our system and each one produces 87 pages of reports. Now, it's what level are you? But it's a crazy level of detail. Yeah. And you talk to teams, and like each one of them is using a different report and analyze it a different way. Uh, but it's a crazy level of detail that, that they go to to analyze their matches. That's great. It reminds me that we need to have team. We need to get uh, a volleyballer in here. They, there's a small community of folks, and it is ridiculous and wonderful to see the kind of stuff that they're doing um, on analytics in there. Listen, will. Matt, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. We could talk to you for a very long time, and we will look forward to talking to you more down the road. Always great to catch up. Thanks, Kate. You bet. Matt Mueller, COO of Huddle. They're based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. They've grown from providing some high school, college football recruiting film to taking over the world. That's all. That's what they've done in the the short time they've been alive. That is another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole team, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen, who've been in here with me in Q4. For Audie Weiner, our fourth collaborator, who had to slip away this quarter. For the boss band, Matty Datz. For the associate boss band, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.